And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. You lost your magic. They knocked you off your game. Your Carlness went right out the window. What's with this Carlness? It's not even a, a real word. It's a conjunction, a preposition. It's a philosophy, a way of life. It's your name with miss attached to it. Bob, listen to me. If you'd have done what I asked you to and come in my dressing room before the show, you'd have known that you weren't supposed to come out here until I introduced you. Jack, I tried to get into your dressing room, but I didn't have a nickel. I understand you're pretty funny as a DJ, and comedy is a kind of hobby of mine. Well, well actually, it's a little more than just a hobby. Reader's Digest is considering publishing two of my jokes. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Honey Dollar. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, it's another true crime case from the files of the FBI, dramatized on This Is Your FBI, starring Stacey Harris from 1947. Then it's part one of a comedy episode of Ozzy and Harriet from 1949. But first, let me say hello to my co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hey, Carl. Another week has gone right. by. Can you imagine? Wow. What's you don't look on? a week older. Well, thank you. I you appreciate that. You too look yeah, about thanks. a week older. Got my hair cut I today. see that. It's, yeah. it's nice Actually, I got them all short. cut. Not just one hair. I got them I, all I see that. It's cut. very short. I, I yeah. like hair on the long side, but you look very You handsome. like the hippie kind of look, huh? No, I didn't say Should that. Should I put it in a ponytail? Would that look good on uh, me? You, yes, that would oh, look good on you. No, I'm going to keep it short. Yeah. Hey, you know what? Hmm. We have an adventure of This Is Your FBI. You love these uh, true crime cases. Well, everyone loves them. You know, there's a lot of shows on TV now that are all about true crime cases, and they take it all from uh, these radio days. This Is Your FBI was a fact-based drama that took closed FBI cases from the agent's point of view and dramatized them. It was created and produced by... Jerry Devine of Mr. District Attorney fame. And this series, Lisa, was endorsed by J. Edgar Hoover. And it followed uh, Special Agent Jim Taylor. And the action shifted from agents to criminals and back to the agents and so forth. Came to ABC Radio in 1945, lasted until 1953. It was sponsored for its entire run by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of America. It's nice to have one sponsor throughout your whole run, right? That would no be No headaches nice. that way. That would be good. Yeah. All right. Well, it's time for This Is Your FBI from April 4th, 1947. This is called The Used Baby Racket. It stars Stacey Harris. Part one now of This Is Your FBI. The Equitable Life Assurance Society presents This Is Your FBI. This is your FBI, the official broadcast from the files of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, presented as a public service by the Equitable Life Assurance Society of the United States and the Equitable Society's representative in your community. Tonight's FBI file, the used baby racket. When a great tragedy occurs somewhere in the world and a thousand people are killed... We read about it and we're sorry. But actually, we do not understand what we're reading. Because it's impossible for the human mind to picture a thousand people being killed at one time. 
But if we hear about one man being burned to death in a fire, we cringe. Not because we think it's a greater tragedy than the death of a thousand people, but because we can put ourselves in the man's place and really understand that one single death. Now, for that reason, it may not strike you as horrible that in 1946 in these United States, there were more than a million six hundred thousand major crimes committed. None of us can realize what that number of crimes represents. But perhaps you can grasp the current crime wave statistics better when you hear that there was a job done by a criminal in the United States last year every 18 and a half seconds. In other words, since you first heard my voice, there have been three major crimes committed. Tonight's file opens in a sloppy two-room apartment on New York's east side. It is early afternoon, and Nora Beekman has just finished listening to some records on her brand-new phonograph. As the doorbell rings. All right, I'm coming. Oh, you. Hi, Harry. Hello, Nora. How's Mom? Okay, just about rid of her cold. That's good. See, what are you doing here at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? You working for Joe anymore? Oh, the cops slowed all the bookmakers in town. You're out of a job again, huh? Oh, find something. I hope so. I hear I brought your mail up. Oh, is that for me? Yeah. It's a package from Tommy. Maybe it's some jewelry. I understand all the soldiers in Germany send home lots of jewelry. Oh. What is it? How do you like that? Everybody else gets jewelry. My jerky husband sends me a record. Well, let's hear it. Uh, Maybe it's a secret message. Hello? Hello, darling. I'm in the Red Cross Clubhouse in Berlin. That's your master's voice. And I just wanted to tell you that I'm very much in love with you. But that's old news, huh? I've said it so often, you must be getting a little tired of hearing it. But you better get used to it, honey. Because you'll be hearing me say I love you for the rest of your life. I got some other news for you besides that, though. I'm coming home to you and the baby. Huh? Isn't that great news? Won't oh, we? that's great. He's coming home. Well, what's wrong with that, Nora? Nothing. Nothing at all, except he's coming home to me and the baby. So? So do you see a baby anyplace around here? Hey, you're right. Where is Sonny? I met a woman in the park one day a couple of weeks ago. Thought Sonny looked so cute in the carriage. Yeah. She told me she couldn't have a baby herself, and she was trying to adopt one. Well, a lot of rich people do that. Well, they told her that she'd have to wait a year before she could adopt a baby. What's this got to do with Sonny? I sold him to her. You what? I sold her the baby for a thousand dollars. Oh. Well, I don't care about that. No, I got to have a baby to show Tommy when he gets here. Yeah, see what you mean. Well, you're a big genius. What do I do now? I don't know. Get out the way you got in. I can't. I got to have a baby. Hey. Might work. What might work? I got an idea. Yes? Is this the residence of Mrs. Martin Schuyler? That's right. Are you Mrs. Schuyler? Yes, I am. Well, Mrs. Schuyler... I'm from the FBI. Yes, the FBI? Well, what do you want here? May I come in, Mrs. Scanner? Oh, oh, yes, I'm sorry. Please do. Oh, thanks. Uh, 
sit down anywhere, Mr. Uh... Uh, Hanover is my name, Mr. Captain. Why are you here, Mr. Hanover? I'll get right to the point. Mrs. Scarlett, you bought a baby three weeks ago. Well, how did you... I don't understand how that concerns you, Mr. Hanover. Unfortunately for you, it does concern the FBI. Oh. That baby was kidnapped. Kidnapped? But I bought yes, it Yes, from... I know what you're going to say. You bought it from the baby's mother. Yes, that's right. But she wasn't the child's mother. Well, she was the baby's nurse. Her nurse? That's right, Mrs. Scott. The girl confessed everything. That's how we got your name and address. Now, there are two things that you can do. What are they? You can give me the child, and I'll return it to the parents, and no one will ever know a thing about it. I see. Or you can have the girl put in jail by fighting the case. In that event, of course, there would be a lot of publicity. Oh, no, no, no. I I don't want any publicity in this matter. But I think you're being very smart, Mr. Skyler. This way, no one will ever know that this whole thing happened. Yes, it's much better that way. I'll get the baby for you now. Yes, if you will. Uh, incidentally, what happens to my thousand dollars? Afraid there's no way of recovering that, Mrs. Schuyler. Nurse spent that money immediately after getting it. I see. And now may I please have the child getting late for the baby to be up, and I promise I'd see to it that it's left in its own bed. Yes, of course. Well, come along. The baby's room is down the hall. Nora, 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 will you take this kid? Oh, you got him back. That's wonderful, Harry. Yes, honey. Come to Mama. Uh, well, now you're all set. Gee, thanks, Harry. Am I a real genius now? I'll say you are. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that in a million years. Now, just let me handle all your business, Nora. You got it. This dame was a real pushover for the story. Well, anybody would be. It's a real good story. I bought one of those wallets like Cary Grant used in that picture with Ingrid Bergman. Mm -hmm. And all I did was flash it, say I was with the FBI, stick it back in my pocket again. Quiet! I almost had to laugh. It was so easy. Now do you see why I got rid of the kid? This goes on all day, sometimes all night. I was going crazy. Wait till I give him the spot. Yeah, kids do take a lot of attention. Rest a couple of minutes. I won't have an hour's quiet now that he's back home. If you wanted him back, don't blame me. I'm not blaming you, Harry. I've just gotten to hate all that noise. Having to stay home every night, changing his diaper, making his formula. When's uh, Tommy coming back, Nora? Oh, I played the rest of the record while you were gone. He just said soon, no date. Well, uh, how'd you like to get another thousand for Sunday? How can I? I just told you, Tommy's coming home. Besides, I just met that Mrs. Schuyler by accident. What do you want me to do? Put a sign on the baby carriage saying this baby is for sale, $1,000? hold it for a second. A friend of mine, this old man's a janitor at one of those orphan places. What about it? Think he'd want to buy something? No, 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 no. But the orphan place is getting letters all the time from people just looking for kids to adopt. So? So we have the old geezer steal some of the letters. That'll be our sucker list. That sounds like a wonderful idea. Okay. I'll get in touch with the guy tomorrow. Then we start cuddling the kid again. Meanwhile, in the New York office of the FBI, Special Agent Charles Watkins is seated beside the desk of Special Agent Jim Taylor. Taylor has just finished a phone conversation. Thank you. Goodbye. Hey, you're on that phone a long time, Jim. Sounded like a complaint. It was a complaint. 
That was a Mr. Martin Schuyler, and he was protesting about an agent who came to his house while he was out of town on a business trip. Oh? Who was the agent? He was obviously an imposter. Ah, what's the story? Well, it seems that about a month ago, Mrs. Schuyler met some woman in Central Park and bought her baby. She what? Yes. Pretty shocking that some people are so anxious to adopt a child and so impatient that they, well, they go into the black market for a baby. How low can a human being get? Pretty low, judging from this. Well, what was this so-called agent's game? It was pretty clever. He told Mrs. Schuyler that the baby had been kidnapped and that the FBI would return the baby to its real home without any publicity. Which suited Mrs. Schuyler fine, I suppose. Oh, naturally. Oh, she was sorry about having to give up the child, but according to Mr. Schuyler, she was happy that there wouldn't be anything in the papers about it. You know, Jim, I should feel sorry for the Schuylers, but I really don't. No, neither do I. To a great extent, they got what was coming to them. But that doesn't catch the criminals. Exactly. And that's our job. Well, Jim, what's the first move? Well, I guess the first thing to do is go out and see the Schuylers. Any other records you want to hear, Harry? No, I think that'll hold me for a while. Hmm. Don't you just love that phonograph? Yeah, yeah. Real good machine. I bought it with part of that first thousand dollars I got for Sonny. Yeah. Uh, what was the name of the people you, you, you sold the kid to this time? A uh, Mr. and Mrs. Paul Buchanan. Oh, yeah. Plenty of dough, huh? Loaded. She gave me the thousand like it was a buck. She's going to keep calling the baby Sonny. That's nice. She asked me what to call him, so I told her that even though the baby's name was Thomas Beekman Jr., I always called him Sonny. Hey, you told her the kid's right name? Yeah. Why? Well, I hate to break this news to you suddenly, but you know what we're doing is frowned upon by the police. Yeah, I know. So what? So giving your right name to people you clipped is one way that they can check on oh, you. Oh, don't be silly. Last woman didn't check, did she? Neither will this one. Well, I hope not, but I think it's about time I went out and got our little meal ticket back again. But it's only been a week since I sold her. Oh, Hello? Hiya, darling. Tommy. Yeah, that's right, honey. Surprise? Sure. Where are you? At the airport. I uh, I got a chance to fly home and well, I I wanted to see you and the baby so much, I I took it. Oh, that that's wonderful, dear. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll be home in about twenty minutes. All right, Tommy. I'll, I'll be here. Okay. I have a big kid waiting for me, will you? Yeah. Bye, honey. Bye. Well, with Tommy, you'll be here in 20 minutes. Well, I guess the honeymoon is over. What do you mean? Well, we can't go on selling a kid with Tommy home. What am I going to do, Harry? Look, uh, you've got much in the apartment that you really want. Well, besides the phonograph and my records, nothing. Why? Well, I was thinking. You know, the cops might be able to check back after we get the kid from the Buchanan. So? So, why don't we... Just keep going. And if they do check back, let them check with Tommy. Because there are so many families in the United States who want to adopt a baby, the process of adoption often takes more than a year. And if you are one of those whose name is on a waiting list... Do yourself and your prospective child a favor and wait until your name is called. Do not patronize the black market in babies. For as tonight's case in the files of your FBI proves, if you go into the black market, you are leaving yourself open to the depraved minds of criminals. In addition to that, you are trafficking in human beings, and thus 
You'll make yourself a criminal. Tonight's file continues in the New York office of your FBI. Special Agent Jim Taylor has just returned from investigating a complaint. He finds Special Agent Watkins waiting for him. Hello, Charlie. Hi, Jim. Anybody call while I was out? No, Jim, not a thing. What's the story at the Buchanan's? They followed almost exactly the same procedure there as they did in the Schuyler case. The man posed as an FBI agent again, huh? That's right. And from the description Mrs. Buchanan gave me, it has to be the same man. How much did she pay for the baby? A standard rate, $1,000. Guess that must be the ceiling price for a human being. Mm-hmm. However, Mrs. Buchanan was at least a little smarter than the first customer. How do you figure that? When the imposter arrived and said he was from the FBI, and that he wanted to return the baby to its rightful parents, Mrs. Buchanan said that she didn't believe him. And she refused to give up the baby. Well, she said she wanted to call the FBI to check whether or not he was a legitimate agent. What happened then? He slugged her, then locked her in a closet. Mm -hmm. And when she came to, the baby was gone. That's it. But we have more to work on this time than we did after Mrs. Schuyler was swindled. Oh, in what way? Well, for one thing, Mrs. Buchanan found out the right name of the child. How did she do that? Well, the woman who sold the baby told her quite by accident that the child's name was Thomas Beekman, Jr. There must be plenty of Beekmans in New York, if that's the right name. We've got another clue that should isolate the area where they live. Well, let's have it. Well, Mrs. Buchanan remembered that the woman told her that one of the reasons she was glad to sell the baby is that now it would be able to get some sleep. She said the elevated trains kept the baby awake. Hey, there's only one elevated train still running in New York. That's what I meant when I said the area was isolated for it. I think I'll ask the telephone company to check and see if they've got any Thomas Beekman listed on 3rd Avenue. Good. While you're doing that, I'll get in touch with the milk company, see if they're delivering any milk to a Mrs. Thomas Beekman. I'll check back here with you in half an hour. Okay, Charlie, let's go to work. Is your name Thomas Beekman? Yeah, that's right. But who are you? I'm from the FBI, Mr. Beekman. Here are my credentials. From the FBI? And something has happened to my wife and baby. Where are they? Uh, calm down, Mr. Beekman. May I come in? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Come on in. Thanks. I've been going crazy waiting. I'm just going to phone the police. I see you're in uniform, Mr. Beekman. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I'm still in the service. I just got back from Germany today. Uh-huh. What ship did you come back on? No ship. I, I flew back. What's the matter? Don't you believe me? Yes, I think I do, Mr. Beekman. You don't in the least resemble the man I'm looking for. The man you're looking for? Here? Hey, what is this? Mr. Beekman, when did you last see your wife? I haven't seen her since I got back. As soon as the plane landed, I called her from the airport. And she was here? Yeah, and then I told her I'd be home in 20 minutes. When I got here, she and the baby was gone. Is your baby's name Thomas Beekman, Jr.? Yes, sir, that's right. Is your wife blonde, rather small, very pretty? Yes, sir, that's Nora. And do you by any chance know a man about, oh, six feet tall, slim, good-looking, with blonde hair and a light mustache? Sounds like Nora's brother, Harry, but tell me what's happened. Well, well, this is rather difficult to tell you, but... Well, Mr. Beekman, your wife and her brother have gone into the business of selling your baby. No, that can't be. I felt the same way when I heard about it the first time. And where's my baby now? I'm sorry, but I, I don't know. He might be with your wife, or... She might have sold him again by this time. Oh, no. No, I... I can't believe that Nora would do that. Mr. Beekman, let's try to do something that'll bring your baby back to you. Now, tell me, what is your brother-in-law's full name? Harry Jackson, but I don't know where he lives, though. I see. Do you mind if I take a look around the apartment? No, 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 sir. Go, go right ahead. Thanks. 
Maybe I can find something here that'll lead us to your wife and brother and your baby. Nora, give that kid a bottle or anything that'll keep him quiet. Now you see what I used to go through. Here, Sonny, drink this. Funny, isn't it? What's funny? You give a baby a bottle and he stops making noise. You give a grown-up a bottle and that's when he starts making noise. That's funny? Sorry, it amused me. Don't get sarcastic with me. Oh, shut up. You're getting on my nerves. I'll get on your nerves even more if I don't do anything but sit around this apartment all day and all night. Relax. The only thing that can spoil everything now is we get caught by the cops. We'll stay undercover for a week or so, and then you can go out and call on the next sucker. But do you think it's safe here? Why don't we get out of New York? Look, all the names on our sucker list are right here in New York. If we leave town, we've got to get another list. But how do you know we're safe in this apartment? It belongs to a legitimate friend of mine who went to South America. He won't be back till June. Okay. You're the genius. How many times do you think we can sell Sonny before your friend gets back? Well, how do I know? We'll sell him as many times as we can. That's the first portion of This Is Your FBI. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Now back to Barry Craig, confidential investigator. I interceded for Spike Sanger. The district attorney yawned listening to me and then brushed me out of his office. An hour later, Sergeant Kennedy explained my failure to me. There's something the DA couldn't tell you. What? What's officially developed with Spike Sanger. We sweated the boy like you advised. We found his breaking point. What did he confess to? Armed robbery and murder. You're shocked, huh, Craig? Yes, I am. Give me the details, Kennedy. Well, one month ago in the lower Bronx, a masked gunman stuck up the cashier of a loan association. The cashier was partly deaf, wore a hearing aid normally. But at the moment, it was turned off. He was eating his lunch. So he was slow to comply, slow getting over to the cash drawer. The gunman interpreted this as defiance. Bang! Shot the cashier dead. All amounted to over $8,000, currency and coin. Did Spike Sanger confessed to this crime? Spelled out every detail for us. Practically reenacted it for us. Well, the story's better than the newspapers. Every detail of the crime is common public knowledge. Spike Sanger knew stuff that never appeared in the press, Craig. Like? Like the exact amount of money in the cash drawer. The press mistakenly estimated it around $6,000. We never corrected them. How much did Spike Sanger say? A few bucks shy of $8,500. That figure was only known to the loan association management, to the insurance company involved, and to the DA's office. I want to see Spike Sanger, Kennedy. They had Spike Sanger in the tombs. They were still sweating him trying to get answers to other crimes listed on the books unsolved. He was on the edge of his cot, head down between his knees. In the dumps with that look on his face a guy gets when he's turning suicide over in his mind. They'd confiscated his necktie, his belt, and shoelaces. You get out of here, Cap. You branded yourself a killer, I'm told. Yeah. 
And I'm your arrest. Pick up your medal at the front desk, hero. Not a shred of evidence pointing at you. A crime that's a month old and cold. You've never been tagged for it. <laughs> you sound like you're mad, I confessed. Self-protection is human nature, even among punks. It's unnatural to beg for electrocution. So I'm a freak. Cap, get out of here. Soon. I frisked you the other night. You were flat broke, not a red cent. Not even a whole cigarette on you. You were snitching butts from the gutter. Oh, now you're going to make poverty a crime, huh? What happened to the $8,500 you grabbed from the Loan Association till? What happened? I blew it in. Where? Uh, here and there, broads, gin mills. I played some pool. I bet on the fights. Went down to the racetrack. A pigeon has wings, so has money. You claim to have spent $8,500 in one short month? Listen, I've been 17 years dreaming of one big binge, so I had it. I can't will you get out of here. How's your confession going to sit with Bernice Cannon? Bernice? She loves you. Love? What's that? How's your confession going to sit with your mother? My mom. <laughs> ah, she's ahead. My confession puts her ahead. I've been bumming eight bucks a week from her, money for smokes and the movies. Get out of here, will you? I want you to get out of here. But Mama Sanya wasn't rejoicing over her eight-buck raise in pay. I can't make you welcome in my house, Mr. Craig. I'm not really the cause of your son's troubles, Mrs. Sanger. He arrested Spike. His trouble started with you. If not for you... His trouble started a long time before me, Mrs. Sanger. Post-infancy, boyhood, adolescence. Kids are okay, and then they're not okay. When did he begin to get wild? Boy in the slums with an invalid father and a tired factory worker for a mother. A boy who was still hungry, getting up from the supper table... Never had a suit or shoes that somebody hadn't worn before him. Yet he had enough faith in, in his heart to go to church every Sunday with his father. When did the father die? When Spike was 13 years old. Was it after the death of his father that Spike began to, well, get difficult? Get into scrapes? Oh, I, I don't know when or, or what. Live in a neighborhood like this. Drunks sleeping on the stoops and in the halls, a, a saloon on every corner, filth, broken plumbing, vermin. Do you expect boys to grow up into angels? No, you can't expect... Well, you think Spike is guilty of the crime of murder? My son is wild, but he's not vicious. He could never kill another human being. He's confessed that he has. Oh, a boy tells stories... A boy tells stories to make himself great. Murders are great people. The newspapers make them famous. In the Sanger living room, Spike's girl, Bernice, had her own brand of scorn. The miracle to me is that Spike didn't confess to assassinating McKinley or sinking the Titanic. You think he lied in his confession? I know. Elaborate on that. The day of the holdup in that loan association. The day and the time. Could Spike be there and be with me, too? You're saying he was with you? And 20 miles away from New York. We were hiking in Palisades Park. We had a cookout, frankfurters and toasted English muffins. We picnicked all day. That's your alibi for Spike? Go ahead. Be cynical. Mistrust everybody. You love him. You'd naturally try to save him. No, Mr. Craig. No? If Spike was a murderer, I couldn't love him. 
Why would Spike confess to a crime he's innocent of? He's bitter. He's disturbed. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Where could Spike have picked up certain hidden details of the loan association stick-up? Facts about it that never were accurately reported in the newspapers. How? Gossip? Talk on the streets? Somebody boasting in a beer saloon where Spike was with his friends? Something somebody else told him? Uh, tell me this. Is there some man somewhere that Spike likes or admires? An older man? Yeah, there is. Who? Mr. Milton. He's the school psychologist in Spike's vocational high school. Mr. Milton. Spike respects him. But why? Just feeling my way. What if it turns out that Spike is guilty as per his confession? I'll cry for a long time, Mr. Craig. And then I'll never in my life cry again. Is there something I can do to help Spike? Mm, yes, there is. First, go down to the Legal Aid Society. Take Mrs. Sanger along. Tell them about Spike and solicit their legal help. Then give them an affidavit of that time alibi you claim for your boyfriend. I'll do that. And do this. That uh, street gang Spike hangs uh, out with. The tarantulas. Uh, drop a hint here and there. Let the word circulate on the grapevine that Spike deliberately confessed falsely. That Spike deliberately... For the headlines, the notoriety. That he has a way out and isn't really worried. He's got a time alibi covering the murder day. And uh, get this rumor going. That Spike knows everything there is to know about the murder of that cashier. Everything there is to know, meaning he knows who the real murderer is. That's the inference I want somebody to draw. Draw the inference and get a little panicky, panicky enough to make some open move. At the vocational high school, the psychologist, Mr. Milton, showed genuine distress for Spike Sanger. The news came as a terrible shock. Uh, you were professionally interested in Spike. Even personally, Spike has charm and likability and cooperative qualities. Last term, he earned 14 service credits. Well, uh, what has been your gauge of Spike Sanger? A certain emotional instability, normally optimistic, but then fits of depression. What causes them? Certain emotional maladjustment, uh, deep feelings of inferiority, guilts. Guilts about what? Well, I, I can't say. If we knew that, we could get to the root cause of his behavior. Well, what generally did Spike confide in you? Spike once blurted that he'd not attended his father's funeral, that he'd purposely hidden himself away all that day in a neighborhood movie. I see. Love for the mother, not so much love for the father. Now, tell me this. Could a boy confess to a crime he didn't commit? Yes, a boy could. Why? Mm, perhaps to punish himself for some other guilt, some secret feeling of guilt. Could an innocent boy insist on his guilt in a situation where punishment might mean the electric chair? Even so, yes. A boy bent on self-destruction could conceivably make such a confession. If Spike is asking for execution because of some secret guilt feelings, those secret guilts uh, can't be the common, ordinary variety. Specify your thought, Mr. Craig. Okay, I'll specify. Say the boy wants to pay the capital penalty, electrocution, for a crime he didn't do. That suggests that the crime he did do is right up to size, 
His secret guilt feelings are over murder. Some undisclosed murder. Well? Mm, it's never as simple as that, Mr. Craig. Why not? Spike Sanger may feel secret guilt about some undisclosed murder. But that murder need not be actual. It can be imagined. It can be hallucinatory. He thinks he's guilty of it, but he's not. Yes. What we call the crime may be wholly fancied. Or, even if real, Spike can have magnified his own role in it, his uh, responsibility for it. I see. Oh, do I? Well, thanks, Mr. Nolan. Bernice Cannon reported her success with the tarantula gang grapevine to me. We met in a remote place. A wharf that uh, looked over the uh, Hudson River. It feels kind of funny being so clandestine, so furtive. Try to flush out a killer, you take risks. I don't want you spotted working with me. I don't want you hurt. Now, what's the story? I have definite progress to report. Well, tell me. I dropped hints, as you told me to, about Spike's confession being false and how Spike knew every detail there was to that... that, that happening. The robbery and murder. Well, I spent one evening in a social club the tarantulas keep up. Horrid, dingy cellar. I didn't even have to broach the subject or be clever. The boys were buzzing with it, huh? Yeah. Well, go on. Last night, I was approached on my street by a fellow known as Lou Lennox. Lennox is older. He's at least 24. But he's around teenagers. A smooth person with slits for eyes. A nervous twitch here in his cheeks. Constant twitch. Once a minute. Hold your eyes. You're fascinated. Symptoms of a drug eater, I'd say. That figures, too. Armed robbery, wanton murder, and narcotics. Well, go on. Lennox played up to me. Every male trick of charm and insinuation. How pretty I was and my figure. Why wasn't I in show business? Then he began talking about Spike. As artfully as he could, but so obviously. He pumped me for details and all that time, that awful twitch... Lennox showed anxiety? Yes. If ever I've seen a man deep down afraid, he asked me for a date. Pretended he was falling for me. He wants from you all that Spike knows about the Lone Association murder. Lennox figures a date and a few drinks will loosen you up. It's to be tonight. Lennox has a car. He'll be outside my house. Mm-hmm. I'll keep the date. Later that evening, I parked myself outside Bernice's house. Soon enough, Bernice's date rolled up. A souped-up convertible, built of special parts taken from a half dozen other cars. It had pink fenders. Lennox had his horn going, signaling for Bernice to come down. I went to join him. Move over, Lennox. I'll take the wheel. Who, who are you? What does my gun suggest? Uh, hood or a cop? A cop. Bernice isn't disposed for fun tonight, but I am. Fun? I, I... Fun with you. We're going to hold up somewhere and play charades. Play charades? I'm going to tell you about a loan association office in the lower Bronx. And a oh. deaf cashier who wore a hearing aid. And then, from the material I supply, you're going to tell me who done it. Lennox amazed even himself. He lasted all night. With the break of dawn, he reached his breaking point. At headquarters, I waited until the police stenographer completed typing up the Lennox confession. Kennedy stood around looking just a little perplexed. Two confessions to the same murder. Which do you believe, Kennedy? 
Lennox's. He's been up for murder before, and not only that... I'll cut. I want a carbon of Lennox's confession. Sure. Typist is finished here. And now I want it signed. Then I want to pass to the tombs. Sure. Sure thing. Watch Spike Sanger read the confession to murder, signed by Lennox. Lou Lennox. He moved into the neighborhood when I was only a kid, seven. He was moving out of the neighborhood and into the hot seat. And you're going home, Spike. Home. (laughs) Yeah, they'll hang out the flags and throw me a block party. Bernice stuck with you all the way. She found Lennox for me. When a girl like Bernice is loyal to a guy, there must be something to the guy. Yeah, whams in the girl's head. Ah, she's crazy not to couple off with Sam Kuzak. Sam's big for music. He's out there in the Lewiston Stadium summer nights. And that laundrette his old man owns. (laughs) How the coin rolls in. Bernice is for you, Spike. Only you, all the way. Mm. Whams in her head. Whams. They buried your father when you were 13, Spike. While the funeral was on, you were hard to find. You hid in the movies. Why do you bring that up? An idea I picked up. You got along fine with your mother, but not with your father. There you were uh, antagonistic. He sat in that chair with his bum heart. Always in that chair, waiting for me to come home from school. Waiting to get busy with something. Get busy with you. Always lacing it into me. For nothing. The worst words he knew, and throwing things at me. Oh, he was a nervous man. In his prime years, but a useless invalid. Oh, sure. He had that excuse. That I was the butt. I was the goat. Do you feel guilty about your father's death? Feel guilty? Me? Do you have some idea that you murdered him, Spike? That... That day Pop keeled over, and then the ambulance doctor pronounced him. Pronounced Pop. You'd come home from school, and there'd been a quarrel, the usual quarrel. Then your father suffered a heart attack. I killed him. I got him so excited, he fell down on the floor. So that's it, huh? You blame yourself. For a death that had to happen sooner or later. That day, or the next day, or the next week. If I'd have shut up, if I'd kept my trap shut. You see yourself as your father's murderer. In your secret guilts. That you tried to die for a crime you had nothing to do with. It, it's crazy, huh? You're mixed up, Spike. But you're a decent kid. In your own odd way, a very decent kid. And now that... That's what's had you so confused is out in the open. I think you'll be okay. With just a little clinical help, I know you'll be very okay. (laughs) You sound like we're coming out of this friends. We're friends. Sure, Spike. We're friends, all right. You've been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. Tonight's story, Confession of Murder, was written by John Robert. 
The National Broadcasting Company has just brought you an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator, directed by Andrew C. Love. Our cast included Jack Edwards, Barney Phillips, Jane Webb, Noreen Gamill, Stanley Farrar, and Paul Richards. Convicts tell their true life stories on The Loser tonight over most NBC radio stations. And that's Barry Craig, confidential investigator from May 5th, 1955 with Confession of Murder, starring William Gargan as heard on NBC. Uh, hey, look what I have here, Lisa. Oh, Remind Magazine. Mike, you see this? I do. This is the, uh, this is the newest issue. It's the November issue of Remind Magazine. It's all about Hollywood's nastiest feuds. Oh, I have Look who's seen on the cover yet. there, right? Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. And uh, there was that great series feud that was on uh, television recently. Oh, that was so well done. Uh, but look, there's uh, mug shots there of Frank Sinatra and uh, Jane Fonda. And uh, I haven't, oh, I haven't read this one yet. I just got it in the mail a couple of days ago. But you know, every issue of Remind Magazine, it's just chock full of fun articles and posters and photographs and crossword puzzles and you name it. And it's all for the nostalgia lover. And right? I know you have an article that you're writing each month. What is the article on for November? Oh, it's on Jack Benny. Oh, I love. And it's Jack sort of Benny. like a sort of a sort of a scandal. That uh, happened with Jack Benny uh, about moving from NBC to CBS and how they sort of lured him to do that with lots of cashola. So is that sort that's of how the I theme? got you to be the co-host? Well, you know, we Same all need way. the little cashola right. in our lives. Yeah, I just bribed you away from the I other radio show. I am very bribable. Me too. Uh, it doesn't take much to bribe me. No, I'll it tell you that not. right now. Yeah, it's all about Jack Benny. And then our schedule is in there as well. See that, Lisa? So uh, make sure you read your Remind magazine. And folks out there in Radio Land, you will absolutely love this magazine. If you're not a subscriber, you should go to their website, remindmagazine.com, and check it out because you save about 60% off the newsstand price when you uh, subscribe off their website, right? Anybody listening to this show would love of Remind Magazine, no yes. question. I agree 100,000 trillion percent. There you, if only you did that every time I yeah. said something. <laughs> I agree with you, Lisa. I agree with you, Lisa. Thank you. You should I'll record that. that and use it as uh, on, your, on your phone. You know, and, you know, It's like your Mike, answering machine. you're on it. Let's take a break. Then it's more on Hollywood 360. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Well, next time it's the adventures of Frank Merriwell from 1948. Then George Burns and Gracie Allen will be here to entertain us from 1941. That's next time right here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you then.